The scripture reading this morning is found in the Gospel of Matthew, verses, yeah, the chapter 20, verses 20 to 28. If you want to follow along on your pew Bible, you find it on page 801. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, Declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left, this is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been, give, been prepared by my father. When the ten heard it, they were angry with the two, other, two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The Gospel of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. A mother's request at the feet of Lord Jesus draws him to express some kingdom value. We'll be looking at that story again this morning. If you want to keep your Bibles out, that'd be great. Um, we're in a series, though, called Lead Us Not Into Consumption, and it's how God's economy confronts our economy. There's a way of life that we tend to think this is sort of the way it should work, and then there's God's way in which it should work uh, that's explicit throughout the Scriptures and especially in this chapter of Matthew chapter 20. So we're going to look again at that story and consider what is it for us to be followers of Christ? What is it for us to be parents of followers of Christ, to be raising up our own brothers and sisters? And, and what is the expectation for us in terms of serving the church? And how does that meet as, again, God's economy confronts our own economy? What I'd love you to do is keep your Bibles out if you have them with you. If not, there's some in the seats there. Uh, looking at Matthew chapter 20, what can be helpful uh, is, is actually looking at the words because sometimes, uh, well, my outfit gets a little boring, and so you might want to just look at the Bible instead. Uh, and, and God will speak to you maybe ways that I'm not. There may be something in this word here today that God has special for you that I'm not even aware of. And so that's one uh, excuse to do that as well. Let me pray one more time as we open up God's word and consider this story. Father, thank you. Thank you for the worship that's going on that I hear the, the sound of pages turning. Uh, what a joyous sound that must be for you. Thank you, Lord, for recording these words, the very voice of our Lord Jesus. At his feet we can spend this morning considering his encouragement to this mother and these sons who are there seeking favor. And Lord, we seek your favor today as we wonder, Lord, what do we do with this story and how do we follow you and what are you calling us to? What kind of life are you calling us into that will sustain us in faith, that will glorify you in this church? Help us, Lord, as your economy comes face to face with 
our economy, the way that we think, the way that we think things should work. Speak to our hearts today, I pray in Jesus' name. In the presence of the Holy Spirit, we continue. Amen. So a mother's request. It says that there's the mother of the sons of Zebedee, and she came to Jesus with her sons. I don't know if she dragged them before him. It's kind of presumed these are probably some young adult guys too. Uh, sons of Zebedee is interesting because uh, they also had a special nickname that Jesus had given these two brothers. Uh, it was the sons of thunder or the thunder boys. Okay, so we get an image from Scripture and even from the ways that these guys interact throughout the story of the Gospels that they're a pretty, you know, uh, a big presence, these guys. They react hard. They're impetuous. Uh, they may be young. They may be younger than some of the other disciples, but these guys are, are, are pretty, uh, you know, uh, big guys. Uh, and you picture them I and mean, you don't name, th- you know, guys thunder who are, who are tiny, right? And so um, these guys had some personality. But they also had a mom. Where do you think they might have gotten that personality from? And here's a mother. And she runs in front of Jesus and kneels down before him and asks, Lord Jesus, can I ask you a favor? Um, Jesus, uh, sure, what would you like? And she, looking at Jesus, she said, Will you please declare that these two precious sons of mine will sit one at the right hand and one at your left, when you come into your kingdom. Wow, mom. She really went for it. Got dropped down right in front of Jesus. Like, can you just make sure my guys get the best seats in the house when you come into your special table? Can you make sure that that happens? What mom wouldn't do that, right? What parent wouldn't want to do that? There's probably a few moms here that, are, that would easily slide in front of Jesus and just ask that. I also think there's uh, more than enough of us parents that that should slide into our knees in front of Jesus asking for favor for our kids. Have any of us ever done that? Just really got down on our knees and said, Jesus, will you just help my my kids? Will you let them sit in the special places? Now, again, she's going over the top with this one asking, can they sit at the table of honor, one at your left, one at your right, when you come into your kingdom? One of the challenges of the Gospels as Jesus goes about his ministry is people have somewhat of a misunderstanding of what he's doing. Remember, there are people oppressed by a Roman government, and they're uh, they're existing as a nation state, but not really. And the hope is that there would be a ruler to come up before them that would establish a Jewish state that would be independent of Roman rule. And looking at Jesus and all the amazing things that he was doing, he was not a military leader necessarily, but they expected that he would be the one to inaugurate this new kingdom here on earth where they would dwell in Jerusalem with autonomy and favor and blessing. So it's probable that mom was thinking about this from an earthly sense. Hey, can you make sure that when, you know, the kingdom comes together and you know, we established the throne room uh, for you, Jesus, that my boys can make sure they get the special spots. And remember, one of them has an allergy, so gluten-free on that side, please. But I want to make sure that they get the special spots. Can you make sure that happens, Jesus? And I, I, love, um, I love Jesus' response as he's listening to this mom on her knees. Will you please just declare that these two precious sons of mine sit at your right hand, at your left in the kingdom? Jesus' response is pretty clear. Mom, I don't think you quite understand what you're asking. 
There's an interesting ten- tension in the Gospels when we hear Jesus speak sometimes. We want to put harshness in his voice. This mom is there. Now, Jesus was very tender towards mom's requests. It, all the way, it goes all the way back to even the wedding at Canaan. When his own mom says, will you do that special thing that you do, son, where you turn the water into the wine and make sure that the family's not too embarrassed because they ran out? He's like, mom, come on, it's not my time yet. Come, just, just, just one time for me. Just go ahead. All right, mom. How many other times, though, do we see mothers skidding in front of Jesus asking for favor for their kids because they're sick or dying? This is interesting because it kind of breaks a cultural stereotype in some way of, of a, a woman coming before a rabbi and asking for favor. But I'll tell you who gets a pass on that? Moms. Moms get a pass on cultural favors, right? There's that which, you know, maybe a woman shouldn't speak to a rabbi in a casual way, but then there's moms, and they'll break that rule every time. Jesus responds to her, I, I, ah, I just don't think you really, you really get this. It's interesting, too, because the setting of the story in Matthew chapter 20 mirrors everything that Jesus has been talking about with humility uh, and grace and, and really an upside-downness in the kingdom in terms of who gets the special seats and who gets favor. Again, there's a way that we think the way should work, and then there's God's economy. And this is a place where God's economy confronts our own sense of the way things work. And I just, I don't think, Mom, you're really getting this. So he's not going to honor her request, give you, you know, the spoiler alert. But in doing so, he actually avoids the very first admission scandal. Because mom was looking for the side door for favor for her kids to get to the best, you know, university. No, if you've been tracking the news at all, like I have, it's, it's been pretty Pretty crazy to read about this. You know, again, parents uh, willing to do anything they possibly can, even if it's somewhat illegal, even if it's super investing, uh, so that their kids can get to the best, best place. So you can see this story is very relevant for today. Uh, Jesus just wasn't offering the side door. But I'll be honest, you know, as a parent, I, I think the one thing that we're obsessed about with this story is, you know, of course, one that it's, you know, kind of the rich and famous getting their due, but there's that. But there's also, I think, a, a relevancy to us as parents because I don't know if I would not do the same. If it were within my means, you know, or even just outside of my means, to do something that would put my kids in the best possible place for their lives to be successful. I don't know if I would have the, the holdback uh, and, and the uh, discipline to not do it. To say, okay, if I just do this, then my kids get the best life ever. Because as parents, that's really what we want, isn't it? We want our kids to, to have the best life ever. Because we love them. And in our economy, we love them enough that we want them to have the best opportunities. Go to the top universities and, and be happy. I remember, you know, some years ago, we were in a small group with first-time parents like us at the time. And we were asking that question of each other, you know, what do we want with our kids? And I can tell you for sure, when we were holding our first uh, a baby and two, uh, I don't think that we pictured that we'd have, you know, five sets of shoes, you know, parked outside of our, our house all the time. But I remember asking that group in our, that question in our small group, like, what do we, what do we hope for with our kids? Now, this was a church-based group. We all knew each other from our, our marriage small group, and then we were all having first kids at the same time. And, you know, faith was the baseline. We we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we want them to be faithful. But we want them to be, have faith and then be happy. We want them to be, you know, faithful, but we want them to be successful. 
We want them to have faith, but we really want them to, to go and have a great life. And that's, that's normal as a parent. You know, we, we, kinda, we want them, yes, to hold on to some faith, but, but at the same time, go and do even greater things. That's always a tension with parents. And I remember we were going around in that circle, and it was interesting just to hear as parents how short-sighted we were, that we really just wanted our kids to be happy. And that feels right and normal, but even the words coming out of the mouths as young parents, it didn't feel quite full enough. I think this is why this story connects to us, and even the admission scandal kind of connects to us, because what do we want from our kids? We want them to have faith, yes, but we want them to have even more than that. We want them to have God, but also the best that life has to offer. This is what this mom is skidded in front of Jesus asking for. Can you just make sure that my boys, my precious boys, get the best? And Jesus uses this moment to tell of a bigger story. Jesus uses this moment where there's a a mom there on her knees uh, begging for her sons to have the best lives ever. To tell and remind, first of all, her, them, and even us, that there's a bigger story that's happening over and above what we're grasping for, that we naturally just reach for. And I think that's what's powerful about these words that Jesus speaks, is he, just, he used the occasion of this mom to tell of a bigger story. And he shared it with her and her sons. He turns to them. The disciples obviously heard it too. It's recorded here now for us thousands of years later to be listening to this story and being aware. So I think Jesus uses this moment to remind us of a bigger story. And you hear that in part of his answer when he says, you know, I don't think you know what you're asking for. You know, to sit at my right hand or my left, I mean, that's not, that's not mine to grant. That's God in heaven. He's the one that's preparing all that. And it's always interesting anytime Jesus does this. I don't know if you think this. Whenever Jesus is like, I'm not really, it's not really mine, that's God's. Because wait, isn't he God? Talked about that a couple of weeks ago, how Jesus could only and absolutely be God himself to fulfill that ministry. So what does that mean when Jesus kind of steps away or sidesteps the responsibility here of being God? What he's saying is, it's up to God to do this, and he has placed himself in a position of humility before God in a bigger story. For sure, Jesus knows all, and he knew what the kingdom was going to be all about, that it wasn't an earthly kingdom, that he was establishing a heavenly kingdom that would have earthly implication, for sure. But he was in this answer saying, actually, there's a bigger story happening over us that's bigger than just our best life now. You see this uh, echoed later in the epistles in Philippians chapter 2, which if you can flip there, it's just a couple of pages ahead. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus Christ, who was, though he was in the same, was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, in other words, something to take advantage of for his own opportunity. But instead, Jesus emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, Being born then in human likeness and being found in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient, presumed to the will of God, all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also 
highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Why does he get all that glory in that back half of that passage? Because he humbled himself and was obedient to the will of the Father. This was his position. This was his role to show us that there's a much bigger story. And so he showed that through his humility and his obedience to a greater will, a greater story that God was telling. In other words, let God work on the reward plan. We just get to trust and obey. But we tend to focus mostly in our natural thinking on the reward plan. Well, if I'm faithful, can he also have the best life? If we have faith, can we also get the best opportunities? Jesus is showing us through his life and his teaching that God works on the reward plan. We get to serve and trust. To be part of this story that God is telling It requires us to be faithful and sacrificial in our walk. And I remember this hitting me like a ton of bricks after I gave my life to Christ. This idea of participating as a living sacrifice poured out for his purposes. See, a lot of us don't imagine that. We give our lives to Christ. We become like a living sacrifice, something that he can use for his glory poured out for him. This is part of God's economy. This is why it says in Philippians chapter 2 that we also should look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was the form of God, didn't regard equality with God something to grasp. See how that works? They're saying in discipleship and following Christ, the same mindset that Jesus had of emptying himself and serving and obeying the will of God should also be our mindset. It's not just thank you, Jesus, that you did this, but it's also thank you, Jesus, and I want to follow along with you, sacrificially pouring my life out for you, being obedient, being faithful, letting God work on the reward plan, which, by the way, is going to be much greater than you can ever imagine, than that which we grasp for. God's reward plan is so much sweeter than that, but it's also us having the same mindset. I remember um, coming to faith and finding that the, as much as I had been told kind of in my pre-walk that I was going, you know, I was destined for hell and all that stuff, um, the promise of heaven actually to me wasn't the motivator for me giving my life to Christ. Isn't that strange? I, you know, most people come to Christ because I was talking to a friend a while ago. He's like, well, I didn't want to go to hell. And so I thought, well, heaven sounds better. So... <laughs> For me, it really wasn't the heavenly reward part that was the the driver for me giving my life to Christ. It it was, Lord, here I am. I'm a wreck. But if you want to take any part of this wreck and use it for your own glory to continue to tell your story, you can do it. I surrender. I give myself to you. That's probably why I'm standing here this morning with that Bible in front of me and these words for you because I surrendered. And God calls all of us to have that same mindset to surrender ourselves before him, to live purposefully. 
Jesus goes on to answer this mom. They are still on her knees pleading for her son. But you notice that he turns his perspective after saying, you don't know what you're asking. Then he turns, presumably looking at the boys who are standing there like, I can't believe my ma just asked Jesus for like the best seats. But did he say yes? Jesus then looks at them and he says, um, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Are you prepared for that? Now, in their tradition, they would understand what that cup meant. It's represented in the same cup that we share when we have communion together, that, that cup of sacrifice, that Jesus' blood was shed in death for our sake so that we don't have to try to please God with our works anymore and that he forgives us in our sins. Are you ready to drink from that cup of sacrifice? And the boys are like, uh, yeah, yeah, we are able. We can do it, right? Yeah, no, I'll do it. I'll do it first, though. And he said to them, you will. You will indeed drink my cup. You will indeed drink my cup. This is the cup of sacrifice. This is the cup of surrender. This is the cup of, use me, Lord. I pour myself out as a drink for you. And yeah, the Thunder Boys, they did. We can have evidence in Scripture that they were both persecuted severely for their faith. Didn't back down once. One of them, Book of Acts, was run through with a sword, martyred. The other marooned on an island, never to see his family again. They tasted that cup, and it was dry but they were faithful all the way through. That's the cup that Jesus invites them and us to drink. And I think we don't prepare ourselves enough for that. Jesus talked about this. He said, who would would build a house if you didn't first think of what it's going to cost you? And when we accept that cup of Christ, we accept Christ into our lives and we say, yes, Lord, I give myself to you, there's going to be attack. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be assault. And it's going to come from within and it's going to come certainly from outside. Like we know that's going to come. There's there's a normal path that happens when someone makes a decision. You know, maybe they've grown up in the church or have never experienced grace before when they say, you know, I give myself over to you, Jesus. There's at first an initial euphoria, like it's really great. All of a sudden the worship songs make sense and everything's like really wonderful and Bible seems rich, it's almost in 3D and the worship songs seem alive. But there's a predictable pattern that happens after a season like that. And it's this kind of drier season where it's like, wait, what's going on? Like I still have the same bills, I still have the same problem, I still have the same tension in my marriage, I still have the same junk at work, really struggling. And you start to get this assault from the inside that maybe this isn't right. Meanwhile, there's pressures from the outside of like, wait, what? You're going to church? What's that all about? When did you become one of those people? There's this assault on us that we're not always prepared for. And I think a lot of people can kind of settle into sort of uh, the shadows rather than standing strong. And I think as parents especially, we've got to prepare our kids to know that they will be tested. They will be tried. As Lars shared with us last week, you know, blessed are you when you're persecuted. That's the position that we find ourselves in, in God's economy. We are going to be tested. We are going to be tried. We are going to be convicted at times. Will we be muted in our faith, or will we still continue to live boldly and vibrantly? As it says in 2 Timothy verse three, or chapter 3, verse 12, indeed, it says, 
all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I wish it would say might be persecuted or could be persecuted or might drive by some persecution. No, all those who would want to live a life for God, all those who want to live for Christ, all those who want to say yes to Jesus, you're going to get tested. You're going to get tried. It's going to happen. Because the world hates what's inside of your heart and it wants to stuff it in a closet somewhere fast instead of letting it bloom and grow. I know that, for example, as I continue to have, you know, attacks in my confidence in my faith that it's going to happen to our kids, and we've talked about this several times, it's not a surprise, one day they might even look and go, you know, all that stuff you told me, I think it's just, maybe it's just a bunch of junk that my parents said, you know. They're going to feel that at some points. But I hope that the, the investment that the Lord has placed in their hearts will still bear fruit and they'll continue to press on and persevere through that. How? What is some way that we can help our kids and ourselves remain strong in their faith amid a world that wants to stuff that out of them? Jesus gives us the answer for that too, back to the mom on the knees. When he looks at them and he says, you know, all the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, their great ones are mean over the top, but don't let it be for you. Whoever wants to be great among you should also be a servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must also be your slave. Look, just as the Son of Man, favorite way of calling to himself, came not just to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Participating sacrificially in the bigger story of God means serving. It means taking the spiritual gifts that God has invested in each and every believer in the space of a church and developing them and using them so the kingdom continues to be pressed forward. All of us have received by faith a spiritual gift and more and some we can develop. And I have found that when we actually start serving with our gifts and our passions together, that makes everything more solid in your heart and you'll be able to stand when you're tested and tried. I have a, a, a friend and I admire him dearly. He's much farther ahead in the parenting path than I am. His kids are raised and they're now getting married, starting to have their own kids. It's amazing when I look at their kids, they're so passionate in their walk, you know, active in their churches. Some are in ministry and some are actually very successful in not ministry jobs, but still ministering in what they do. It's really interesting to see this because I've known these kids since they were little. And so I had to ask him, like, what did you do? How did you do it? He said, well, one, you know, you got to hit your knees in prayer all the time for your kids. Be like that mom. Jesus, I need to ask you for favor for my kids. Second thing he said, worship. Let worship be a vibrant part of your life. Let them hear the word of God praised in their, in their home constantly, in prayer and even in song. And the third one he said was serve. Give them, get them to use their gifts. Even if they're young, they have gifts to use. If they get their hands working in the kingdom, that just anchors them so much more to, to faith. And let God work on the reward plan. So this is what it means to serve. Going back to that mom's group some years ago, my wife was the last one to go of the moms, and I, her answer was really shocking among the others. And I had never heard her say it either. It was the first time. She said, I really hope our kids suffer well. I'm like, wait, what? We all did that. Like, what, you want your kids to suffer? 
She's like, no, I, but I, I don't want them to suffer, but I, I know they will. I know life is going to come at them hard. It does it for all of us. And when that does, I want them to hold on to their faith in Christ, no matter what. I want them to be able to suffer well. Then it came to me. I said, well, if I had a vision for my kids, I, I hope that they would serve humbly. I hope that they would accept the gifts that God has poured into them and the experiences that he's given them in service to the kingdom, that he would use them mightily to build up the kingdom through the, through the local church. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this story, this mom on her knees, this call to a bigger story that we participate in sacrificially and serving together? Well, one, it's rescuing ourselves, first of all. It's easy for us to imagine that the church is a place of goods and services. And it's especially easy in an attractive place like this. I love this church. It's very nice looking. But it's also like we have, it's easy to find when you're church shopping, it's easy to find one with the great preschool that maybe has the best staff or compelling youth ministry or, you know, pastors that seem like they're, they're friendly or joyful and, and, you know, it's got staff and things to do, you know, people providing things. It's easy these days to imagine that church is a place of goods and services. But according to scripture, it really is not a place where we just get to go and get served. As Jesus said, it's those who serve also. So what if we can start imagining the church to be a place of God and service, a place for us to be able to use our gifts sacrificially to serve one another and the greater kingdom of God and to make sure heaven is stuffed packed that day that Jesus does come back for his family. Here at Hinsdale Covenant Church, in the next several weeks and months, you're going to hear lots of opportunities to start serving together, and some of them are going to be really easy. We're starting to recruit right now for a welcome team. I would love friendly faces or even people that could just fake it. <laughs> we have children's ministry, babies that need snuggling, preschoolers that need someone to chase them around, school-aged kids that just need to hear the words preached fresh. We have other ways for you to serve too, both locally and globally, to continue to develop your gifts, to build up the kingdom through this church so that we can continue the next 126 years of ministry together. And it's exciting. And so I just want you to start preparing your hearts for that. Lord, how can we begin to serve you? Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you shape our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you equip us for ministry. Lord, I pray that we would today begin to live sacrificially in your greater story, that we would, Lord, recognize that we are here to serve you in your kingdom. And Lord, until that great and wonderful day when the, the heavens are packed and we worship you in spirit and truth, Father, I pray that you'd continue to find us faithful, protect our families here, Lord, protect its parents, Every child that's here in this ministry, Lord, may they continue to grow in strength and service to you. We bless you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.